Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. So basically, even if you wash your clothes after you commit a crime, that doesn't mean that it's going to go away, right? Right. You're absolutely right. You're listening to Episode 39, Part 2 of Premeditated Evil. It's, you know, it was 2002, and it still haunts me. Um, and I know it haunts a lot of people. Um, I guess, I don't know, lesson learned. Checking on your children. Oh, you hear bump in the night, you go check your children. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please listen to episode 38, part one of Premeditated Evil. This is a complicated case, so you'll definitely want to catch up first. For those of you who already have, I want to start off with someone you've already met. A retired detective, San Diego Police Department, Mo Parga. Detective Parga was critical in the investigation to find seven-year-old Danielle Van Damme, a little girl who'd been fast asleep on the night of February 1st, 2002, when evil entered her family's home, a tidy four-bedroom home in an upper-middle-class neighborhood in San Diego. So when the Van Damme case happened, um, it was... (sighs) I think it was the first we'd ever had in San Diego where uh, such a, a huge case. And um, I, th- I think at first nobody could believe that a um, child was kidnapped out of her bedroom. So to recap, Danielle's parents, Brenda and Damon, along with her two brothers, nine-year-old Derek and five-year-old Dylan, were all tucked in for the night. Brenda had gotten home at around 2.30 a.m. after enjoying a much-needed girls' night out at the local bar. Damon was awake when she returned home with a couple of friends. He'd stayed home with the kids. And around two, had let the dog out for a quick bathroom break, out the sliding glass door that led into the backyard. But now, in the early morning hours, everyone was tucked in and the family was asleep as a man stealthily entered their home, silently, climbing up to the second floor, where each of the Van Damme children had their own bedrooms. And of course, across the hallway, The parents were sleeping in the master. This predator in the night somehow knew where to go. He had one thing on his mind, finding Danielle. He crept inside, violating the very sanctity of that wholesome pink and purple little girl bedroom, crossing the distance to her twin bed within seconds, where on this night, the family dog Layla wasn't sleeping by her side. She was alone when he scooped her up in the darkness, brazenly whisking her away without a sound. Sometime after 3 a.m., the control panel of the house alarm silently blinks a red flashing light over and over again. It was enough to rouse Damon from his sleep. He gets up to investigate the source of the flashing light. He knows somewhere in the home, one of the doors or windows wasn't secure. It was a chilly night and Damon follows the cool air, rising up the stairs where the bedrooms are. He follows the chill to the sliding glass door that was slightly ajar. Had he left it open when he let the dog out? Or maybe it was one of their guests before they left, earlier in the evening. Had they accidentally left it open? In any event, everything seemed as right as rain. 
nothing was out of place, so Damon shut the door. And sure enough, that security light was in the green zone again, and he walked back up the stairs, into his bedroom, and went back to sleep. But he hadn't checked on the children. So I think he got inside the sliding glass door, and then um, I think he was in her bedroom, and when he took her, that could have been the time that the slider was left open when he took her out. That's something we'll never know, um, how that all went down. I know that Damon was just upset that he did check the kids after that door, locking that door. And um, and I, I pray for him, because he lives with that, you know? He didn't check the kids after shutting that door. If you'll recall from last week, closing that slider and then going to bed without first checking on his children was a split-second decision that would come to haunt Damon. Because by the next morning, Saturday, they would discover that Danielle was gone. Yes, ma'am. I have an emergency. What's the emergency? My daughter is not in her bed this morning. She's only seven. Okay. When did you find her? Just now? Just now. I thought she was in there sleeping, and I went in there because... Someone came over, I was babysitting, and she's not there. Her name Brenda Van Dam. Doesn't have a history of running away or anything, right? No, no, not at all. And, and... All right, take a deep breath, okay? Did you see anywhere? What's your daughter's name? Danielle. Of course, police scoured Danielle's bedroom for any signs of a struggle or physical evidence that would help them understand what had happened to this little girl. But there was nothing. No ransom note. Nothing was out of place. During those first 24 hours, a massive search ensued, a Herculean effort by law enforcement agencies and citizens across San Diego to find Danielle and bring her back home to their Saber Springs neighborhood, where every single resident had consented to a search of their home, all but one, David Westerfield, two doors down from the Van Dams. Patrol officers conducting the search had been told by neighbors that David was out of town on a road trip in his RV. This was something he did often, so often, in fact, that he had a nickname, Desert Dave, because he loved spending weekends in the desert with his son or friends. But this trip, he'd gone alone. So Danielle is kidnapped Friday night. And after police search the neighborhood homes and all over the area, by Sunday morning, they don't have any leads. So Detective Parga is called to the scene. She specializes in robberies and kidnapping. I didn't get called till Sunday. I get a page early, early, early the next morning, telling me to get to the scene. And uh, it was being turned over um, to robbery as a kidnapping. So that's how I got involved. One of the people that Detective Parga was interested in talking to the most was David Westerfield, the 50-year-old engineer who worked out of a second-floor office in his immaculate home, where he was said to live there with his 18-year-old son, who stayed with him part-time. The thing is, while David had been out of town, his name kept coming up in the Van Damme's timeline. He'd been at the same neighborhood bar as Brenda Van Damme the night that her daughter Danielle had gone missing. Brenda and Danielle had also had an encounter with him when they were selling Girl Scout cookies in the neighborhood just a few days before. And it was then that David had invited Brenda and her husband to one of his, quote, adult parties at his home, whatever that meant. Brenda had only met David officially around two weeks before, on a Friday night, when she was at Dad's bar with her girlfriends. When I walked up to David Westerfield's house, the neighbors had told us he was gone. He wasn't home, but I wanted to go check anyway. And so when I walked up, I saw this beautiful putting green lawn, you know, just gorgeous lawn. And he had this hose 
dragged all the way out to the corner by the street and then doubled back. And I thought, if this guy's supposed to be gone for the weekend and he's got his hose out here, it's going to make the lawn yellow. And I thought, there's no way if he's so meticulous about his lawn, he's going to leave that hose out there, you know, for the weekend or whatever. On Monday morning, David Westerfield heads back to town from his road trip. But before going home, he made a pit stop at his neighborhood dry cleaners. The business had just opened, and Westerfield's appearance made an impression. As he dropped off bedding from his RV and a jacket. It was a really cold morning, and he was wearing a thin t-shirt, thin shorts, no shoes, and no socks. By the time Detective Parga arrives at his doorstep on Monday morning, he does consent to the search. I felt like he thought we were stupid. You know, like he looked down upon us. You know, my partner tried to talk to him a little bit, and, and he would just go, you know, hey, you know, you guys look around or whatever. You know, it's, uh, you know, I got stuff to do. And he was very, um, I don't know, sure of himself. And, but he was, you know, he was nervous. You could tell he was nervous. Um, Wasn't was, he, like, sweating and it was cold out? Yeah, it was cold out because I had a jacket on and, and he was sweating. Uh, it was just, it was just weird the way he was kind of trying to interact with me, but trying to um, let us think that nothing happened at his house. In fact, not only does he open up his home, but also his luxury RV and his SUV to be searched. And if you'll recall in the previous episode, Detective Parga would never forget that window screen in his master bath that looked out onto the Van Damme's backyard. How the screen was bowed, as if someone had been pushing their face on it. Binoculars were also found in a drawer in his master bedroom. David would also agree to come down to the station for an interview where he would fail a polygraph. After giving a very complicated tale detailing a bizarre and wandering road trip that even he admitted as he was explaining his movements to police over the weekend sounded weird. He used the terms we and us when describing his travels in the desert. Uh, and he's an experienced motorhome driver and had been to the desert many times. Despite seeing another vehicle stuck in the sand, he got himself stuck numerous times in obviously deep sand. He traveled further down the washes into remote areas, unlike his previous trips. Based on his odd behavior, failing the lie detector test, and his cleaning rampage within his home and RV, David Westerfield's life and property would literally be under a microscope. So on Tuesday, February 5th, based upon that interview and the alibi that he had or didn't have, a search warrant was obtained for his home, his motorhome, and his SUV. This time they could go in and they could actually search everything. And this is really based upon the things that they saw in his house his interview, um, you know, the fact that he just kept coming up in all the conversations. So it became a very significant person of interest quickly. That's Jennifer Shen. You heard her in part one. So Jennifer Shen, retired crime lab director for the San Diego Police Department. I'm so grateful to Jennifer, who took the time to run through an entire PowerPoint presentation live with me to break down the forensics in this case, which we'll get to in a bit. But for now, let's focus on what police computer specialists found inside Westerfield's home. On David's hard drives, they discovered graphic and violent child pornography on computers in his bedroom and home office. They also found a shopping list. At the top of it, he'd written bleach. There was a strong odor of bleach in the laundry room area. He had a full gallon of bleach still in the laundry room, and bleach was listed first on the shopping list on his counter, on the counter in the kitchen. 
According to Jennifer Shen, once the search warrants were issued for Westerfield's RV, SUV, and home, all that evidence had to be collected and painstakingly processed to find connections between David Westerfield and the victim, Danielle Van Dam. And from the beginning, what they were finding was worrying. Law enforcement would employ Cielo, a cadaver dog who had alerted inside of Westerfield's RV in a storage compartment within the motorhome. Pornography in large quantities was located on his home office computer. Some of this was child pornography and some of it was violent. The bedding from the master bedroom was collected. The laundry from inside the washer, inside the dryer, and on top of the dryer was collected. The lint from the dryer trap and from a trash can in the garage was collected. And a dry cleaning receipt and shopping list with bleach on it were collected. All of those things really became very important um, as far as the forensics go. Investigators rushed to the dry cleaners. Not only was Westerfield's wacky road trip troubling, loaded with details that didn't really add up, but why had he prioritized going to the dry cleaners that early morning? And not just once, but twice. What was he trying to wash away? The dry cleaners clerk remembers that Westerfield had on shorts and a t-shirt with bare feet on that cold early morning. He was driving the motorhome and requested one day service. This was unusual for him. In addition, she noted that he was brief and short in his conversation while he is normally sweet and gabby. She thought his clothing and his demeanor were odd. The jacket and the comforter were impounded by the police from the Twin Peaks dry cleaner. They also wondered what Westerfield was trying so hard to clean away with bleach when they searched his RV. After examining the motorhome with high-intensity light from one end to the other on their hands and knees, we were able to locate and collect three bloodstains. One was located in the front on the curtain on the driver's side window. One was located in the hallway outside the bathroom. And a third was located on the comforter in the bedroom. What did he do to her? I don't know. I don't know. It's just awful. The bedding from the motorhome was collected along with bloodstains, fingerprints, and numerous scares and fibers. A child-sized partial handprint was located on the cabinet above the bed in the motorhome. One of the things that was interesting about this handprint is its orientation. So if you can imagine yourself yourself lying on the bed near where that cabinet is on your back and then reach your hand up over your head and turn it to touch the cabinet. So the fingers were pointing backwards towards the mirror. So it, it was as though someone was reaching back while lying on the bed. And it was a small child-sized print. When they find a handprint of a child in the RV, they know that to find out who the handprint belongs to, they need to find a handprint to compare it to. But they weren't able to lift a handprint of Danielle's to compare it to the one that they had found in the RV. As the Westerfield residence was being processed, we were still working on the Van Dam residence. The, the technician there collected reference samples that were so crucial later in the investigation. This included a hairbrush of Danielle's, as well as hairs and a saliva sample from the family dog. The processing of the evidence was time-consuming. Here's Jennifer describing how they were able to lift fibers from multiple crime scenes for analysis. We have essentially square Petri dishes that are about four inches by four inches. We take double-sided tape, 
and we apply one side to the Petri dish. And then when we want to use it, we pull off the second backing and then hold the Petri dish in our hand and then use it as a tape lift where you can, you know, pat it on whatever surface you're interested in. Mm -hmm. The tape lifts that we use are gridded. So when you are a Tracy evidence examiner, you can take these tape lifts, put them under a microscope, magnify them up to, you know, 10 to 40 times, and then look at those tape lifts grid by grid to make sure that you see every single hair, fiber, paint chip, you know, glitter particle or whatever you might be looking for. Now you actually see every single quadrant of that tape lift and don't miss anything. So that's what we did here. The reason you use tape lifts is you're trying to collect the trace evidence that's on the top surface. You don't want to use a vacuum cleaner because you will vacuum up stuff from who knows how long. But if you just pat the surface with an adhesive, then you're going to collect the most recent types of evidence that were um, deposited on the surfaces. It would take time for investigators to process what they'd collected and compare it to the samples taken from Danielle's home. And even though Westerfield's trip didn't make sense, he adamantly denied having anything to do with Danielle's disappearance. And coupled with the fact that she hadn't been found, they had no choice but to cut him loose. But... Investigators didn't let Westerfield out of their sights. From the moment he became a suspect, he'd been under constant surveillance. And as the days wore on, the forensic team burned the midnight oil, processing evidence, knowing only too well that every second counted. It was all hands on deck, and everything was streamlined and prioritized. Meantime, searchers continued to look for Danielle. Using Westerfield's alibi, that ill-fated solo road trip where he'd essentially driven his RV back and forth from the beach to the desert and then back to the beach. Because as his story went, he had forgotten his wallet back in his SUV. Remember, he'd also gotten his RV stuck in the desert twice, overpaid at a park, and that wherever he went, he always made sure to have all of the curtains drawn in that RV of his. But now that investigators had his cell phone records, they were able to piece together his movements all weekend based on the cell towers that he'd pinged off of. With those coordinates, they were able to put together potential sites for the thousands of volunteers searching for Danielle. And it was during this time that the commitment to finding Danielle within the community never wavered. Her kidnapping struck a chord. It could have been anyone's daughter. The grim reality was still there hanging over every inch of the terrain that was traversed by the volunteers who knew that it was more likely than not a recovery mission as opposed to a rescue that if they found Danielle somewhere out there in the wild she wouldn't be alive you know we had so many amazing search groups out there that we were spreading out we were going further and further out, and we knew he went to the desert. So you got to kind of work from the desert back in, which opened it up to, you know, hundreds of miles. So, uh, we, you know, any dirt lot or <laughs> area where you could pull over, um, you know, I know the search groups were just frantically searching um, every area where you could pull over. Um, I know the Glamis team and all of the off-roaders, they were amazing, the offloaders. Yeah. More than two weeks after Danielle was kidnapped from her bedroom, the forensics in the investigation would lead to the first of many breaks in the case. The test results came in. Two small stains of Danielle's blood would be found on David Westerfield's clothing and in his motorhome. On February 22nd, 
20 days after Danielle Van Damme had vanished, seemingly without a trace, police arrested David Westerfield for her kidnapping and presumed murder. The blood found on the back of the collar of his jacket, the one that he dropped off at the dry cleaners that morning, matched Danielle's genetic profile to the point that there was only a 1 in 670 quadrillion chance that the blood could have come from someone other than Danielle. On Friday, February 22nd, 20 days after Danielle disappeared, the lab identified the blood in the motorhome and the blood in the jacket as Danielle's. Mitochondrial DNA testing on the hair from the motorhome by the FBI laboratory confirmed the hair from the motorhome belonged to a relative of Brenda Van Damme. At 10 o'clock on Friday morning, David Westerfield was arrested. So the important part here is that we now have blood and hairs that belonged to someone related to Brenda in his motorhome and in his home. At Westerfield's arraignment on kidnapping and murder charges, he would plead not guilty. And yet, as the search for Danielle continued behind the scenes, something was about to break in the case. On Monday, February 25th, District Attorney Paul Finkst announced that he would charge Westerfield with kidnapping and murder of Danielle with special circumstances, allowing him to ask for the death penalty. On Tuesday, he was arraigned. At this time, rumors of a deal were heard. There was talk that Westerfield's attorneys indicated Westerfield would reveal the location of the body if the death penalty were taken off the table. Here's Prosecutor Fink describing to CBS 8 San Diego just how close Westerfield had come to telling authorities where Danielle's body was, all in an effort to save his life. It was minutes between the time that I was about to make a deal with the defendant through his lawyer for the return of her body and my being notified that a body had been discovered. Detective Parga says the search for Danielle was all-encompassing. I actually had horses going to search that area the day um, after she was actually found. We had scheduled some horse searches down that area, but she was found the day before. How far away was it from their neighborhood. It was like 45 miles. Since I'm not familiar with that area, and I, I'm not trying to get gruesome at all, I just want to try to understand. So he's coming sure. back from the desert. He pulls over in the RV. It's probably in the middle of the night. And then there's no there's no cars around there. Is it remote? And then how far away from like where he opens up the RV door? Was there tall grass? Where he dumped her body, there was a large, um, probably 50-foot, dirt. The side of the road was probably about 50 feet of dirt. So he could pull the motorhome over and be clearly off the road and then open the door and go up an embankment about 20 feet and then put her body under a bush. So do you think that he chose that place because he was hoping she would never be found or that that was just a place where he didn't really care? It's a place where animals could, could get to her. There's a lot of coyotes and such. And I think he just was looking for some place to dump her. Because you got all the off-roaders out in Glamis. And that's kind of a remote area. It's not a trail where people are going to go hiking. Mm-hmm. It's just a big, um, bushy area that gets, you know, anybody can dump anything. So it's not a place that anybody's going to be like, yeah, they were going for a walk and they they found the body. Like, it's not that type of place. No, not at all. 26 days after she'd been kidnapped, seven-year-old Danielle Van Damme's body was discovered in a remote part of San Diego County on February 27, 2002. 
Here's the first officer who arrived at the scene where Danielle's body was found on Dehesa Road near El Cajon, about three miles away from a casino where Westerfield was known to have gambled. Finding Danielle's body meant that that plea bargain was off the table. And as a result, so was Westerfield's motivation for working with the prosecution. Instead of pleading guilty to the kidnapping and murder charges, Westerfield pivoted back to his original story that he was innocent of all charges. So it would have saved the parents from going through what they had to see on the stand and in the pictures. It would have been a kind thing to do, um, which that person... He is never going to do anything kind. You know, he did, it was all about him. It always has been about him. So he did, I guess he decided not to. As we get to the forensics in this case, I want to advise you first to take care. Because what we will be discussing will be difficult to hear. So discretion is advised. It's important to know how the condition of Danielle's body would make it difficult to tie Westerfield to her. Because when they found her, her mummified remains had been ravaged by animals, which meant no sexual assault testing could be performed. It also meant that no definitive cause of death could be determined. The ME believed that she had died at least 10 days before being found, and as much as six weeks earlier, a couple of days after she'd been kidnapped. The medical examiner examined Danielle and confirmed the body was badly decomposed, had a great deal of tissue loss due to animal activity, due partly to the tissue loss in the genital and, and abdom abdominal areas. There was not enough evidence to determine whether or not she had been sexually assaulted. He could not determine a definite time of death or a specific cause of death. However, he did rule out strangulation, gunshot, and stabbing. I do have slides coming up that are, are pretty unpleasant. Are you... So if you don't want to see them, you don't have to. I'll see one. So this is the dump site. So you saw the road. Mm -hmm. So here's the dump site where she was found. Mm -hmm. And that's her body. So this shows the condition of Danielle's body when she was found. The initial news report said that the body had been burned due to the discoloration that you can see. This discoloration was actually due to the advanced decomposition of the body. There had been quite a bit of animal activity. However... The amazing thing for us forensically was that both of her hands were fully intact. All right. That's enough of that. That's very traumatizing. So we had several people processing the body recovery site. Uh, they recovered vegetation, insects, soil samples, and tape lifts of the exposed body. At the autopsy, um, David Faulkner, who is the county's entomologist, and Jeff Graham, our late print examiner, were present. They collected all of Danielle's head hair. I have been in this business for 33 years and I have never seen an autopsy where someone collects all of someone's hair. So that was done in order to be able to examine it to see if there was any way that we could identify trace evidence that might've come from her surroundings prior to her death. To accomplish this, small clumps of hair were separated out, sonicated and filtered. The filter paper was examined for trace evidence, and then the cleaned hair was spread out under a large gridded glass and placed under the stereoscope. This process of examining her hair took 
eight days. If you'll recall, I mentioned the importance of finding Danielle's handprints. They had found a child's handprint in the RV on a cupboard by the bed. And the way it was positioned, the handprint in the RV, that the child who placed it there was most likely alive. In addition, her hands were removed from her body. And they did that in order for our latent print examiner to rehydrate them because they were mummified. So if you could rehydrate them, you might be able to get a good handprint. If you have a good handprint, then you can compare it to the print found in the motorhome. Remember, they weren't able to lift a handprint of Danielle's from her home. So now having Danielle's hands, they were able to compare it to the print found in the RV. And it was a match. Jennifer says her team's parceling out of the work was absolutely crucial. In each of their assigned tasks, certain bits of evidence, similar fibers at the different crime scenes were coming to the surface. From the Danielle's house, you have her hair, you have her dog's hair, and you have her carpet fibers. And that's what they, and we knew what they looked like. So that when we were looking at Westerfield's house, um, he had gray triangular polypropylene carpet fibers with a, you know, triangular cross section. That's what that is. And then in this winter home, there were the blue trilobal nylon carpet fibers. So when we were going through tape lifts, we were looking for those things. So as I was going through tape lifts from her body, I'm looking for fibers that match his environment. When you're looking at stuff from his laundry, we're looking at looking for things that match her environment. And they were able to compare these samples from the samples that were collected from Danielle's home and body. The unholy connection between David Westerfield and Danielle Van Dam was established through forensics, but we'll never exactly know what happened to her over that weekend. I mean, I guess we'll never know what he was actually doing when she when she passed away. Like, he never says that, right? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. But I, I mean, I think the assumption is that he had her in his motorhome and was trying to figure out what to do. And but it's difficult to know how long she was alive. She was definitely alive for some of some of the time. As the forensics team prepared for a high-profile trial, the stress of this highly charged case was intensified by the baggage of another high-profile forensic-heavy case in California. Just eight years earlier, the so-called trial of the century played out across the world. The prosecution of O.J. Simpson for the murders of Ronald Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson. A huge difference in the cases was that in the O.J. Simpson trial, after Simpson was arraigned, the prosecution and defense had six months to prepare. But in this case, Westerfield's defense would request a speedy trial. Armed with the body and the results obtained from the laboratory, the preliminary hearing began on March 12, 2002, less than two weeks after the body was discovered. So that had been six weeks after her disappearance. That, that, that's what was like tripping me up with this whole thing. It's like, how did this evidence come in so quickly? Because, you know, you're used to it being like, we'll get to you, you know, mm -hmm. six weeks or whatever. But this seems like it was like rush. Yeah. Well, and I, I will say and stuff like this, everybody pulls out all the stops, which was what was happening. What was happening here? A trial date was set for June 4th, 2002. Jennifer knew being prepared was key in this case. The pressure to get it right was monumental. Some things that are really important when you're doing a trace evidence case, which this really is, you have to be able to assure the jury that 
there is no contamination of evidence that happened within the laboratory itself. So the way that we do that is that we have essentially three separate crime scenes here. We have the Van Dam home and all of the trace evidence that might have come from that carpet, hair, dog hair, whatever, right? Then you have uh, Westerfield's home, motorhome, and SUV and all of the things that would come from there, carpet, fibers, you know, his hair, etc. And then the third crime scene is where the body was dumped. So those are three specific crime scenes. And what we're trying to do, what all trace evidence is ever trying to do is connect people to people or people to places that should have had no connection. So there should be no connection between David Westerfield's home and Danielle Van Damme. So we're looking for things to show that she was in his home. There should be no reason that anything, uh, you know, any trace evidence from David Westerfield's environment should be in her bedroom. So that's what we're looking for. So what's really important is that when you go through all of the mountains of evidence, that everything is kept very separate. So we had three trace evidence analysts, myself, Tanya, and Mel, and we each took a different thing. So you can see my job was Westerfield's SUV and Danielle's body. So I was assigned the body. Oh my gosh. What was that like? It was horrible. It was really horrible, honestly. It was, it was, I mean, this case was, it was exhausting. Um, I, I actually had just gone through a separation. I had two small children. So I had become a single mom. I had, you know, like a four-year-old and a one-year-old. It was one of the hardest times of my life. And the pressure on this case was immense. And just knowing that every day when you're working, you are trying so hard to bring a conclusion, a conclusion of some sort to this family that endured the most horrifying, awful thing you could possibly imagine. So the pressure was immense. And for this trial, you know, the testimony and everything else, everybody in the world was watching. So testifying about the work you did in front of everyone that's ever worked in the field and everyone you ever have known and, and trying to make sure that everyone believes all the things that you've said and done. It's, it's pretty extraordinary pressure. <laughs> I was very fortunate not to be at the scene. I had the evidence that was taken from her body. So I oh, had her, necklace, I had her hair, I had the tape list from her body. I had those things you know, having to actually be at the crime scene itself, it was kind of a difficult spot. It was not, um, you know, the environment itself was, you know, was a dump site off a busy road. It was, it was just a very unpleasant scene. And then to know that you're dealing with a child, a, a mummified child that has been eaten by wild animals. I mean, it's just, it is, it's beyond horrifying. And so you just have to put on your forensic brain and, you just have to know that you're looking at a puzzle and you're trying to figure out a puzzle and you know that what you're doing is going to bring closure to a grieving family. And that's just how you do it. You just have to think about it like that. You can't think about what it meant to them. You can't think about how they're suffering. You can't think about your own children. You can't think about any of those things. You just have to think like, oh, look, here's an interesting orange fiber. Did you see an orange fiber? I have an orange fiber. Are they the same? Where do they come from? Does this mean that this is a connection? And you focus on those things. That's how you have to do it. I think that's the only way you could do it. Because if Correct. you didn't do it, if you were thinking about your children, especially you having young children at the time, like, I don't even think you could do it or a person. It would be very tough. 
The prosecution's opening arguments made it clear that, from their perspective, the forensic evidence unequivocally tied David Westerfield to Danielle. They would point to the child pornography found on his computer as the motive behind kidnapping and murdering Danielle Van Damme, that it was proof that he was obsessed with and had sexual fantasies revolving around young girls and violence. The judge would only allow a fraction of the child pornography to be shown to the jury over concerns that the images were so horrible that they would unfairly prejudice the jury against Westerfield. And yet, even these images had the power to bring tears to the eyes of jurors as they watched. Some had to look away. It was so terrible. The defense tried to overcome the pornography, saying that it didn't even belong to David Westerfield, that it was actually his son's. The defense also suggested that police did a shoddy investigation when it came to investigating the people in Danielle's parents' circle. Damon and Brenda's parenting came under fire. They were painted as swingers whose open marriage brought people coming in and out of their home. That it was the Van Damme's lifestyle, potentially to blame, for inviting a killer into their home that wasn't David Westerfield. I mean, it sounds like his defense attorneys were doing their job, which is to try to blame everybody else and not their client, including right. the parents and their lifestyle and, and that some of the people that came into their home because of their, you know, swinger lifestyle or whatever, they basically invited this into their home. And yeah. and so Yeah, I mean that's why it was it was all blown out and it was it was nothing. It was a big nothing. What he what they were trying to say about the parents and that's and you know the jury had to see through that they had to see the truth that made me angry that they went after the parents because they were good parents they were loving they you know they dabbled a little bit in the um the single whatever world and it wasn't for them these people were tortured by the negativity from the public which is unfair because they really were nice people but yeah, we had to go investigate all that crap, and you know, when something's, when some box is open, you gotta go in there, investigate it before you can shut the box. Um, and unfortunately, that's what it, that's what you gotta do. But you know, you can't leave any any unopened doors or whatever. You gotta check them all. Danielle's parents would testify that they had smoked marijuana with friends the night of the abduction, and that on previous occasions they'd engaged in group sex with other couples. The defense poured salt in the wound by bringing in witnesses to testify that Brenda had propositioned patrons when she'd been at the local bar Dad's that Friday night before her daughter had been kidnapped, that Brenda and her girlfriends were drinking, flirting, and dancing in a sexually suggestive manner. How can we forget that witness testifying that Brenda was seen rubbing up against Westerfield as she danced with him? In fact, the defense would use the dirty dancing to their client's advantage. So basically the low card exchange principle is that when two items come into contact, there will be ex an exchange of evidence. The more prolonged and the more violent that contact, the more exchange of evidence there will be. So that's really the basis of, of all forensics that two people or a person in a place come into contact that never should have. And when they do come into contact, there is an exchange of evidence from one to the other. And that evidence is what we use to show that that contact occurred. So the low card exchange principle, the way the defense was arguing that is that Brenda was dancing with David Westerfield and transferred her environment onto his environment. And then he would have transferred 
those fibers, hairs, dog hairs, whatever, into his environment. That is how the defense was trying to explain away this trace evidence. The prosecution was worried that the jury would focus on the Van Damme's sex lives as opposed to the compelling forensic evidence which connected Westerfield to the kidnapping and murder of Danielle Van Damme. And the suggestion that a brief bit of dirty dancing would explain away all the hair and fiber exchanges between Danielle and David Westerfield, they just hoped a jury would see through it. The whole role of forensics is proving that there was a physical connection between Danielle and David Westerfield that never should have been. But there were hurdles for the prosecution to overcome. There's no timestamp on blood, hair, and fibers at a crime scene. With the blood and fingerprints providing such strong and compelling evidence, you might wonder why trace evidence was important and why it became such an issue. The fingerprints and blood show that Danielle was in the motorhome, but they do not provide a time frame showing the evidence was deposited at or near her time of death. The defense was like, just because it's there doesn't mean it wasn't there before Danielle went missing. To sum up all of the physical evidence we found associating Danielle with Westerfield's environment, we found Danielle's blood in the motorhome. We have Danielle's fingerprints in the motorhome. We have Danielle's hair in the motorhome and in Westerfield's home. We found Layla's hair in the motorhome and in Westerfield's home. We have Danielle's bedroom carpet fibers in the motorhome. Orange fibers were found on Danielle's necklace in the SUV and in Westerfield's home. Blue nylon fibers were found in the motorhome, in Westerfield's home, and on Danielle. It's a very large amount amount of physical evidence. And when it's taken in its entirety, it's very significant. The Van Damme's dog, Layla, would play such a huge role forensically in this case. There's a couple really important things. One was that her hands were intact. That was absolutely vital. And two, she slept with her dog. She had a Weinerimer and they shed. So her bed, her pajamas, her body, her everything was covered in dog hair. So what a really prolific type of trace evidence that we could look for in other places. Earlier, Jennifer had discussed this painstaking process of going through every single strand of Danielle's hair searching for clues. But as it would turn out, the actual length of Danielle's hair would also become key evidence in this trial. So like the fingerprint and blood evidence, however, the presence of the hair by itself does not narrow down a time frame placing Danielle in the motorhome at or near the time of her death. However, since Danielle had just had her hair cut by several inches, days before she went missing, the time frame could be narrowed down significantly because the hairs recovered were consistent in length with the hair taken from her body. So that was very interesting. And um, the hairs that we found were shorter that, and they were consistent with the hairs we took from, from her body, which would tell you that it had to have happened within a few days that she left the hairs the hairs were left in the motorhome. This was really important because one of the things that he said was that she and the other kids in the neighborhood would break into his motorhome and play in it. No one ever said that that was actually true, but that was very important, the, the length of the hair. During the trial, prosecutors theorized that Danielle had been murdered within the first couple of days of her abduction when Westerfield claimed that he was alone on that camping trip, although witnesses would testify in court that they had heard him talking to someone inside of the RV. The prosecution's theory is that he entered the Van Damme home sometime prior to 2 a.m. Saturday morning, probably through the side garage door. Remember that Brenda found the alarm light flashing and the side garage door open when she returned from dad's at 2.30 that morning. He remained in Danielle's room while the adults ate pizza and exited the house through the rear sliding glass door after the parents went to bed, carrying the sleeping child with him. 
Remember that when Damon woke up at 3.30 in the morning, he found the alarm light flashing and the rear sliding glass door was open. So here another tragedy about this case is that neither time did the parents check on the child. I mean, no one, and the, all these doors are open and nobody went and checked on the children. Hindsight, I know. He took Danielle to his home, keeping her there for the night. He transported her, still alive, in his SUV to the motorhome. And we know that she was likely still alive when she got to the motorhome because of the handprint on the cupboard and the fact that her blood and hairs and fibers were found in a variety of places within the motorhome. That's why that, that's another reason why that handprint's important. Right. And it's up high on a cabinet. So it wouldn't yeah. she would have accidentally she'd have to do. She'd have to go like that. Correct. He suffocated Danielle somewhere along his travels and stored her body temporarily in the outside storage container on the motorhome. He dumped her body into Hisa sometime late Sunday night or early Monday morning. The defense refuted this timeline, pointing to the state of Danielle's remains as proof. The defense would call a pair of forensic entomologists, basically bug scientists, who would say that according to the entomological activity on Danielle's body, her death occurred sometime after February 5th, a time when Westerfield was under constant police surveillance, and therefore he couldn't be the perpetrator. Prosecutors would also provide their own time of death forensic experts, who refuted the defense's bug evidence alibi, saying insect activity on Danielle's remains had slowed because of mummification, which delays the decomposition process. At the end of the day, jurors agreed with the prosecutors that the sex, drugs, and rock and roll defense of trying to throw Danielle's parents under the bus was irrelevant to the crime, and they weren't persuaded by the defense's insect evidence as his alibi. David Westerfield would be convicted and sentenced to death for the kidnapping and murder of seven-year-old Danielle Van Dam in 2002. The reality is, even though David Westerfield was put on death row, California's moratorium on the death penalty through lethal injection was imposed in 2019. And in 2022, the state's governor ordered the dismantling of the death chamber at San Quentin, where Westerfield is currently incarcerated. Because of your wonderful governor there in California, put a moratorium on the death penalty cases, so he's not going to be put to death. He can just sit there and have the taxpayers pay his bills. So clearly you think he should yeah. be the first one in line. I do. I do. You know, these these poor parents have to live with this every day, and he's sitting there all fat, dumb, and happy. So, yeah, that kind of, that kind of pisses me off that he's sitting there, and these poor parents and her brothers, you know, they still suffer. I mean, why would he want to go on trial knowing that everything was going to be exposed, that all the the horrible photos of what happened to her? It's like, do you think that it was just he wanted the attention? I know you briefly met him, but like, I know that your instincts are clearly, you know, really good. Well, it's just, uh, it's just um, it baffles me how anybody can do that to a child. And if it's a person that can do that to a child, they are capable of anything. Uh, and I don't know what goes on in their mind to think that it's okay. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it's sick. It's, it's horrible. After Danielle Van Dam's body was found, community members created an impromptu memorial on the site. And eventually a permanent site would be erected. Danielle Van Dam Memorial. Um, and that was, um, that was near where the exit he would have taken to get back onto the freeway. 
So it was the closest exit of the freeway uh, for where her body was found. That, to me, says it all about the impact that this case had on the community, just to, that there's a freeway sign, government sign, that, that has this, that has named this exit after this little girl. Talk a little bit about what that was like on the community. Oh, the community, you know, it, when her body was found, I know the community of El Cajon was just so caring and um, they wanted to do something, you know, because her body was found out in El Cajon. So the community was just wonderful. They, you know, they wanted to dedicate something to her. So I was at that dedication. It was, it was really t- touching. Before we sign off this week, I wanted to thank you for listening to The Murder Chronicles. And if you want to learn more about the backstory of this episode, stay tuned for the bonus episode, where my producer, Brandon Morgan, and I discuss the case. And if you want to help us out, please take a minute to rate and review the show. The Murder Chronicles is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We are produced by Brandon Morgan and myself, music by Soundstripe. For Pie in the Sky Media, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.